Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 95853, MLB versus SLJ. Uh, Mr. McDuff. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. As a result of an order of the Chancery Court of Benton County, Mississippi, my client is no longer the mother to her children in the eyes of the law. The only way she can become their mother again under the law is through the appeal that is available as a matter of right under Mississippi law. The question in this case is whether the Supreme Court of Mississippi can, consistent with the 14th Amendment, prevent her from taking that appeal in a case of this magnitude without even considering her claim that she is too poor to pay the $2,300 fee that the state has imposed. When, when you say, Mr. McGuff, uh, considering her claim, uh, well, what do you suggest would be the factors that the Supreme Court of Mississippi would take into consideration if it were to, quote, consider it, as you say? Well, I, I just mean that they have not even considered her claim that she is too poor, which would involve a consideration of her income. But if, if they were to conclude that her income were too poor, uh, were below whatever extent, yes. then that they would have to uh, allow the uh, and require this money be paid to the court reporter? Or they, uh, well, they could do a number of things that would allow her to appeal. I mean, one is they could, could excuse her as in a normal informal pauperous case and allow her to proceed without a payment to the court reporter. Another is they could set up a schedule of payments. Another is they could have her sign a note. The court reporter uh, is going to have to be paid in any event, I take it. If, if, if your client doesn't pay him, the state is going to have to. It's not the sort of a fee that the state could simply waive. Uh, under state law as it is written now, that is correct. But as we, we pointed out in our reply brief in response to the claim of the state, that if we win this case, this will involve an incredible outlay from the state treasury. Uh, if Mississippi chooses, it can change state law so that in certain cases, the court reporter is not paid $2 a page. The court reporter here is an employee of the state, makes $33,000 a year in salary. But the reason he takes the job is because of his access to these, outs uh, these uh, transcripts, is it not? At least that was my experience with court reporters. You wouldn't hire, they, they wouldn't come to work just for the fees they get for sitting in court. It's the transcripts on which they make their money. Well, well I, I don't know the answer to that. I assume that's true certainly for many, if, if not all. But uh, it, Mississippi could do, for instance, as Texas has done or as West Virginia has done. Or it could and, abolish appeals alternatively, could Certainly, it? yes. And, and, I mean, our point here is... It suggests, uh, you know, if the greater includes the lesser, if it can abolish the, abolish the appeal entirely, why can't it uh, simply... Uh, uh, provide will give appeals, but not if the state has to put in any money, and, and we're not going to give it to uh, impecunious litigants. Well, for, for the same reason expressed in, in the majority opinions in Griffin and the long line of cases that have followed Griffin. Those were criminal cases. Well, that's, that's true, Your Honor, but in, for example, Lindsay versus Normant, uh, which is a civil case, this court expressed the same principle, that if once the, once the right of appeal is provided by a state as a means of, of promoting accuracy and as a means of correcting errors and correcting injustices, it cannot be taken away in an arbitrary fashion. And that's our argument here, is that the interest in this case is so important that the same principle should apply here that applies in Griffin. And Payment Griffin. is an arbitrary fashion? I mean, gee, so much of uh, uh, what happens in the world is determined upon whether you can pay for it or not. Well, why is that an arbitrary fashion? Uh, certainly, but, but this is different than uh, someone who comes along and says, well, I want the government to pay for something I can uh, want, to, want to purchase on the free market, whether it's a car or whatever. This is where a, a citizen has been brought into the court system uh, for, the, for the sole purpose of attempting to terminate her relationship with her children. And she is thereby subject 
to all of the power of the state. Now, and subject to the court system that has the unique ability to terminate forever her relationship with her children. Now, in Mississippi, as in most states, the state has chosen to provide an, a level of accuracy and a level of corrective review for errors and, mis, and injustices through its appellate courts. But my client is being told, because she's poor, she can't take advantage of that while those who have money can. How about a custody proceeding, a child custody proceeding? Would, would you be here making the same argument if she had lost in a custody battle? I, I, don't think, I don't think that argument would have the same weight we have here because of the difference. I mean, in, 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 when a person loses custody, even though the child may leave the home, the parent can still visit with the child. Well, maybe the custody order doesn't provide for visitation. Or, 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 and even if it doesn't... Can I turn on that? Even if it doesn't in most custody orders, no. It, it, there is an element of an ability to communicate, to play a role in the child's life, and in the future, if conditions change, the parent can petition for visitation or petition for custody by contrast with a termination... So you think a principal line can be drawn between yes. the, this yes, case and a custody case? Yes, I do, Your Honor. And, and, and one example is Santosky versus Kramer, where this court held that in parental termination cases, because of the severity, because of the finality and the irrevocability, a clear and convincing evidence standard was necessary before terminating parental rights. In Mississippi, uh, the Mississippi legislature adopted that after this court's decision in Santosky. But Mississippi has not adopted... And, and, and other states have not, uh, for that reason, adopted a clear and convincing standard when the state seeks to take custody. How do you distinguish Harris against McRae, where the court was dealing with a medically necessary abortion for an indigent woman? The distinction, I think, there, Justice O'Connor, is that in Harris, uh, the, 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 the uh, citizen wanted an abortion paid by the government that she would be receiving on the free market. It was something she chose to obtain. It was here. considered, I thought, the circumstances were that it was medically necessary. Yes, but it was done through the governmental program of Medicaid is what, is, is what the citizen was seeking. Here, by contrast, whether the petitioner has been brought into the court system where the state has set up the exclusive mechanism for terminating her parental rights, and she, all she is asking is that she receive the same protections that had been set up by that system well, how, how much, that a wealthier person would receive. How much weight do we give to this exclusive method for termination? In many states, the only way to foreclose on one's home is by a court proceeding, uh, a foreclosure of a mortgage. Now, would you distinguish that? This, and yes. The person says, this, this home is absolutely essential to me. Uh, I'm raising my kids in it, uh, and uh, if, if I lose it, it means my whole family life goes. Yes, and, and, and we are not basing our claim solely on the fact that the state has, has this exclusive power, but we are basing it in part. The difference between our case and the case you cite, I think, is the fact that uh, housing and ownership of land does not have the same constitutional status as the relationship with one's children. And, and this court said that in, in, in Lindsay versus Norman, I think, when talking about how housing does not have the sort of constitutional uh, magnitude that that uh, exists in other cases like this. And for I think that's right. Yeah, well, I was about to ask one. Why, why is that? Why, is why doesn't it have the same constitutional magnitude? Sounds important to me. Oh, certainly it's important. But I think that I think this court's long line of decisions have noted that that family relationships between children and parents are of a much greater constitutional magnitude. And the notion of liberty. You, you mean to tell me that if, if, if I am, let's say I am dismissed by an employer, 
allegedly for uh, sexual abuse of a child committed to my, my care as an employee. My reputation is ruined. I pay millions of dollars in damages in a civil suit. Uh, I am unemployable in the future. Uh, in that kind of a situation, the state would not have to pay uh, for an appeal. There, there would be less of a case in that situation less than of, we have here. Less yes, of a less case of an argument. here. Oh, yes. I think less of an argument because the right here... Uh, for example, in the, in the case you just posit, uh, Justice Scalia, if uh, someone goes into court and tries to take away some privilege of, of, of a person because of these types of accusations, as long as they're not criminal, right. there's no clear and convincing evidence standard. Here the court has held, because in Santosti, in Lassiter, where the court discussed the right to counsel, has held that the termination of parental rights works a grievous harm that is unlike no other, save perhaps... Like involuntary incarceration. I'm just asking whether it's true is what I'm asking. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's true. Yeah. Not just that we said it, but that, that it's true. Oh. <laughs> and you, you distinguished in response to Justice O'Connor the custody case from the deprivation permanently of parental status on the basis of the permanence of the latter. Well, what about establishing a parental relationship? What about paternity? Proceeding. Suppose there's a finding of paternity in a district in a lower court. Is the defendant in that case, by your reasoning, because of the permanence of that determination, entitled to a free transcript? I, I think I think paternity is much closer to what we have here. Now, there's one difference, and, and, and I'm not I don't know this in detail, but my understanding is that now with the new DNA technology, that paternity can be established or disestablished with, with something close to certainty so that the, the, I think the court can take into account well, the appropriateness before of Before that, let's say yes. it was just that it was shown by a preponderance of the evidence. Not clear and convincing, because as far as I know, clear and convincing right. is not required to establish paternity. And then the defendant says, for the rest of my life, I will have to support this child, whatever rights a child has under the law, those rights... I will have to satisfy, and I, I don't want that for the rest of my life, so give me a free transcript. I think paternity is very close to the case we have here. Yes. Is it? Would you make any distinction between the two? I'd so that if we hold for you, then, then when the next case is paternity, we have to hold that too? I think, I think one distinction would be that in, in a parental termination case, you do have a constitutionally imposed standard of clear and convincing evidence in which appellate review, in which there is a role for appellate review in assuring that is carried out uh, as opposed to the parental termination where you do not have a, con I mean, as opposed to the paternity where you do not have a constitutionally imposed standard. And I note in this connection, uh, a number of times this, this court has said that, for example, in the punitive damages cases, that where a state establishes appellate review, it can play a role in protecting constitutional rights. And so I think that argument exists here that wouldn't exist in the paternity case with respect to the level of evidence that's required. Well, do you want to take that as a general rule that whenever the Constitution is, is said to impose a higher burden of proof, that the, uh, the, uh, the, the right to, to um, sort of economic equality and the vindication of, of one's position uh, is, uh, is going to follow? I think, I think that is certainly a way the court could draw the line in future cases. Now, again, though, it, we are not asking for economic equality and 
presenting the case. I mean, the, the, this court's decision. Well, all, as far as the issue before us uh, yes. is concerned, yes. you are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm referring specifically uh, to. Why not counsel? Why Why shouldn't she be entitled if this is that significant to have counsel uh, on the appeal? Well, I, I think because of the reasoning this court expressed in, in the majority opinion in Ross versus Moffat. I mean, the, the equal protection clause, although that was in the context of a criminal case, I think that the reasoning is, is applicable here that. Uh, the, the, the equal protection clause does not give a person the right to duplicate the legal arsenal of a wealthier person in presenting the case, but it does, the 14th Amendment does give a right to present the case in the first place where the interest is important and where the state has set up these mechanisms for promoting accuracy and for correcting injustices. The, um, if, if we find that uh, the equal protection argument you make is unavailing, uh, that is to say that it is not unreasonable to make this distinction. Uh, does that not necessarily determine also the invalidity of your due process argument? I mean, I take it you're making a due process argument as well as an equal protection Yes, sir. Yes. I'm uh, basically asking is there a, a difference between the two. Once we have said that it's not, un assuming we said that, is that it's not unreasonable to make that distinction, uh, wouldn't the due process argument fail as well, or would it? I don't think so, and, and of course, the, I mean, the, the Griffin line of cases uh, has employed both the due process and equal protection clauses, and I think the difference, I guess, is was expressed by this court's majority opinion in Evitz versus Lucy, describing the Griffin line, where it said the due process claim is based on the fact that the state has set up these appellate procedures to promote accuracy and so forth, and therefore the state acts arbitrarily towards a citizen when it takes them away, in effect, and when it does not give the citizen the full benefit of that panoply of protection. So Even I know we said it's reasonable for equal protection purposes. That, that, that's, uh, I mean, I, you do have a point in the sense that, that in the Griffin line, the two have gone together. But I do think it's a separate analysis. I mean, if the state has set this up, and if the state is telling a person that it should, uh, that, it has, that it has made these, this uh, level of review available, and then I, I do think it's, a, it's an arbitrary action, even though you might consider it, quote, rational for equal protection purposes. Is, and, the, is the real problem with this case that the judge didn't give reasons of the trial judge? And, and did you preserve that as an independent ground for alleging a constitutional violation at any point? There is. The judge just doesn't give a reason. The judge's, the judge's written order came after the trial was over. And so it can be raised on appeal and will be if an appeal is permitted. But you're not making that argument here, that that's a separate independent constitutional violation, a failure to give reason? We're, yeah, we're not making any merits arguments well, you, here. You could, you could make that argument without a transcript. Yes. Yes. Can I ask you just a sort of a, a variation of Justice Kennedy's question? In the Lasseter case, the court refused to hold that the person like your client is entitled in all cases to counsel, but did, indi did indicate that on a case-by-case -case basis, counsel might be required in, in some situations. Supposing in this case, instead of a one-line order rejecting your claim, the trial judge had made detailed findings of fact saying that uh, he relied on the testimony of so-and-so to the effect of blah, 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 and he gave a very careful opinion and analysis of the reasons, and you could tell what the what the basis of the decision was and what the evidentiary support for it was, would you still plan to say you were entitled to counsel in that situation? I mean, entitled to a transcript in that situation. Uh, 
I think we could. I don't think it would be a strong <clears throat> argument. But yes, I think as long as Mississippi Supreme Court requires a transcript to review contentions that the trial judge's findings and conclusions were unsupported by the evidence or contrary to the evidence, and assuming that argument could still be made after this opinion, yes, we would still have the same contention. May I raise the question whether you really come within the, the rule of the due process cases? Because I thought the rule in the due process cases was that the state could not, on one side of its, from one side of its mouth, say, you have a right to an appeal here, you're entitled to be in court, and on the other hand say, but aha, there is some uh, barrier which we are erecting uh, which precludes you from taking advantage of, of, of this appeal right. Here, what the state is saying is, Nobody without the cost of a transcript or nobody without a transcript in his hand uh, has a right to appeal. It's a condition precedent for the, for the appellate right in the first place. So that it seems to me you're not within the, the due process case's reasoning, and it seems to me you've got to stand or fall on equal protection. I don't think so. I mean, because the fact that the state says, yes, you have to have a transcript in the beginning to take the appeal is simply a procedural rule that it imposes and because it conditions it on this $2 payment per page to a court reporter, I think it is the same sort of barrier that you would have. And that's why I think Griffin and, and uh, it's, that line of cases went off not only on equal protection but on due process. Mr. McDuff, as a practical matter, what is the difference between uh, a, a decree of non-parenthood, as in this case, and uh, a decree, as sometimes occurs in, uh, in, in cases of... of uh, uh, no, uh, no visitation rights, no custody and no visitation rights. What, what does this individual lose that a parent who was, who was denied uh, custody and visitation rights uh, doesn't lose? The, the parent who is denied custody and visitation rights can later petition to regain them uh, if conditions change. And, and depending on the order, may still be able to have some contact with the child with the telephone or letters or still participate. Well, that would happen here just because the state declares you're, you're a non-parent doesn't mean you vanish. I assume you could still... It, 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 it does mean that you are erased from the child's life as their parent, save for any grace given by the ex-husband and, and the new mother, who I guess could allow the children to visit with you. But otherwise... That's the same as, as, as no custody and no visitation rights. But with no custody and no visitation, you can petition when conditions change. With the termination of parental rights, as this court said in Santasi, is one of the reasons it imposed the clear and convincing evidence rule. It is final and irrevocable. For it, the, Chancery, the Chancery Court's order here illustrates it. I mean, it ordered that the name of my client be taken off the children's birth certificate as their mother and replaced by the name of the new mother. Now, that's, that's symbolic, but I think it symbolizes the dramatic difference here, and that's why I think this court ordered clear and convincing evidence as the appropriate standard in these cases, but it has not been ordered in, in custody cases of the type you're talking about. The, uh, you made a, uh, an analogy to the criminal proceeding in terms of the impact on the person. So you said what, you're really asking for an extension of the Griffin line. And I think that's what you said, that, uh, we, we that deprivation of parental status is as severe as... Uh, a $250 fine. Yes. But you don't go all the way because Griffin and Douglas came together, and I think you are recognizing that the right to counsel is not something that would be automatic. Oh, oh, that's correct. But I think that's also that's true in the Griffin line of cases. For example, in Mayer versus City of Chicago, the court held that a transcript is necessary for a 
an appeal of a conviction, a misdemeanor conviction in which no jail time is imposed, but the court said in Scott versus Illinois that counsel is not required. So I think that it, they are not coextensive in terms of the breadth of the, of the constitutional principles. The, um, you, you mentioned that you weren't sure about the fraternity situation, is there, and you are attempting to distinguish all of the civil proceedings. Is there anything else that you would say is like this? Involuntary civil commitment, I think, is of, of this magnitude. May I ask that the line? What if I feel differently? What if I feel it's really bad and maybe even worse for some people to lose all their worldly possessions? Uh, how do I decide which, uh, which cases to... Uh, just my feeling about parenthood or my feeling about worldly possessions? Justice Scalia, I think through the same process this court has gone through in the cases, for example, involving the clear and convincing evidence standard, where it has imposed them as a constitutional matter mm-hmm. in involuntary civil I wasn't here cases. then, so I don't know uh, <laughs> what they did. I thought maybe you could help me out how we came to those conclusions. I, I think it's, the, it's the, the traditional sort of 14th Amendment analysis where you no, look at the... Right. Yeah. Read the opinion. Um, <laughs> like, uh, may I ask a, a, a question about this Mississippi practice? Uh, who paid the guardian ad litem? The guardian ad litem's uh, payment was awarded as cost by the Chancery Court against the plaintiff, who's the, the, the ex-husband. So your, your client was charged $500 for the guardian ad litem? No, I'm sorry. It was awarded against the... Uh, it, the costs were awarded against the person who actually prevailed in the case. In this instance, who was the father? And so the, the guardian was paid by the successful party. Yes. And could, the, if you, if you, oh, could, could the guardian have appealed? Yes. And who would have paid for the cost of the transcript if the guardian had appealed? I, 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 there were several possibilities there. I, I, I guess the, the court, either the Chancery Court or the Supreme Court, could have could have ordered one of the parties to pay it. Or I think the guardian might have, if, if the guardian could not afford it. And well, the, the, guardian, the guardian certainly doesn't have any interest in paying it. Right. The, um, I think the same principle that we are invoking here might be available if the guardian is able to claim, as the guardian could, could do in claiming the rights of the child. Now, this is an infant, uh, I'm sorry, this is an infant, a young child, uh, two or three, how old was the child here? Uh, five and seven, I believe, at the time of the termination. If, if your client had succeeded in raising the money to pay the, for the transfer, could she have, and was successful on appeal, could she have recovered that as part of her cost? Yes. Yes. And, and we cite in our reply brief the, the provision of the Mississippi rules to that effect. What are the instances, or are there instances, in which the state does pay for the cost of a transcript? In Mississippi, it is in criminal cases. In, in, pardon me, in a civil case. Uh, there's a Mississippi statute that provides that it will be paid for in involuntary civil commitments. Now, the Mississippi Supreme Court has a stated principle that it stated in this case that informal pauperous appeals are not allowed in any civil case. But, in fact, there is the statute that apparently the court was not considering when it made that statement, both in this case and in several prior cases. The, um, Justice Kennedy, you, you earlier were talking about the Equal Protection Clause and, and, whether, and what would happen if the court found that the Mississippi scheme here was rational. We actually do think that because of the interest involved here, that there is something greater than rational relationship test and something greater than minimal scrutiny, and that at the very least intermediate scrutiny would be appropriate, given, uh, number one, the fundamental interest in the parental right and, and the fundamental interest in what this court has, has called an accurate determination regarding that right. And specifically, I'm referring to the Lassiter case. So for that reason, we think 
that the justification offered by the state, particularly this $2 per page thing, which is not required uh, at all for the state to continue, for it to keep its court system going, and it and does not promote the state's inter- interest in accuracy, which, is, which it has expressed by providing these appellate courts, that the state has not put forward a persuasive or substantial... Well, are you, are you suggesting that the court... That, that courts could uh, employ reporters at the same salaries if they weren't allowed to charge for transcripts? I, I don't know the answer to that, Mr. Chief Justice. I think they could. But I, I think they certainly would be able to keep them if, for example, they continued paying them the $33,000 a year they receive, continue to allow them to receive $2 per page for the many paid transcripts they do during the year, but said that uh, these informal pauperous transcripts are going to be part of your duty as a salaried state employee. I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. McDuff. Mr. Moore. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the issue in this case is whether or not the state is going to have to subsidize the cost of appeal of an indigent appealing termination of parental rights. And we contend that it does not, either on due process or equal protection grounds. From a due process point of view, previous long-standing decisions of this court have held that appellate review is not necessary for due process purposes. And as to the equal protection claim, this doesn't fit within any of the, the recognized equal protection type claims. First of all, there's no disparate treatment among litigants. Everybody's treated the same. Everybody's required to prepay the, the cost of the appeal. Second, there's no suspect class involved because previous opinions of this court have held that the poor are not a suspect class for equal protection purposes, even when fundamental rights are involved. And third, there's no impingement of a fundamental right in this case because the only interference with the parent-child relationship is the statute that allows the state to terminate parental rights under certain circumstances. The only issue in this case is what procedural due process must be provided prior to that termination. And that either goes back to a Matthews analysis of whether or not the proceedings that are provided are fundamentally fair. And then it would seem the question would be... May I ask just one question? It is true, is it not, that uh, the child has to be represented separately in the proceeding? Uh, Yes, Your Honor. That's a matter of of due process, too, I would suppose, because the child's rights are are vitally affected as either set of parents. The statute requires... At least the statute does require... And what if the... And, and therefore, there has to be a guardian ad litem appointed if the child is a minor. And what if the guardian... It's, I know it would be an unusual case, but what if the, the guardian took the position that the natural mother was the better parent and wanted to appeal an adverse decision? Would the guardian have to advance the, the transcript costs? That is unclear. The guardian is paid percent to... Uh, the, uh, a rule, I think it's Rule 17 of the appellate procedures, and there is some statements about about the trial judge being able to enter any other orders, which might imply there might be a possibility if the trial judge decided that it, that was in the. the if the interest of justice required in this unusual case, the judge might conceivably order the state to pay the uh, order a transcript if the guardian indicated a desire to appeal. Well, I think it's, it's simply, it's unclear. It seems to me there might be an argument to that effect, but as to whether or not that would be accepted, 
I don't know. Would, would it be wrong for the court to say that a guardian is entitled to an attorney, the child is entitled to an attorney, uh, as an equal protection matter because a fundamental right is implicated here? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't get the question. Suppose, suppose counsel were required uh, in, in, in a termination proceeding such as this, and the court announced that the requirement was pursuant to the Equal Protection Clause uh, in the case of an indigent, uh, indigent party. Would that be an incorrect statement of, of the law? I mean, i.e., it would be an alternative... Uh, Alternative ground for to to due process to Matthews versus Eldridge. Is it illogical to say that? If you're asking if the court had ordered an attorney be appointed for the mother or the child, then for the child. You said it was required under Matthews versus Eldridge that there had to be an attorney. My only question is, uh, would it also be a requirement under the Equal Protection Clause? In the case of an indigent person. No, what I was saying is that the attorney is, has to be appointed for the child based on the statute, and this is the statutes that deal with termination. It's not required by Matthews versus Eldridge to have no. an attorney, in your no. view. No due process. No due process requirement. No, I think that's the Lassiter case. Or, well, Lassiter leaves it open for potential in certain circumstances based on the balancing test that an attorney might be required. Matthews really doesn't address the question of when you should have an attorney, does it? It's more the type of hearing you should have. Right. Matthews is just whether or not fundamental fairness is met and whether or not yeah. additional safeguards have to be provided. I also think that case assumes that fundamental fairness can be met at the trial court level and that an appeal is not required, which is consistent with the older cases saying that appellate review is not required for due process purposes. Counsel, do you conceive that a fundamental right is at issue? Here in the case, uh, when you deprive a parent by state action of parental rights? We would concede that the parent-child relationship in the past has been held by this court to be a fundamental interest. However, in this case, we question whether or not there is a fundamental right at this point in the, in, in the proceedings. And that's because at this point in all of these proceedings, there is a, a judgment by a state trial court terminating this person's parental rights. And based on the line of cases that deal with or Stanley versus Illinois and the Quillian case and Lair case dealing with biological parents, it seems to indicate that parental conduct determines parental interest. And it would seem at this point that her interest would be at least less than fundamental. We don't know what they are, but it would be less. I don't know why the interest wouldn't remain the same throughout the proceeding. It's either fundamental or it isn't, and maybe some heightened scrutiny is required of procedures that the state invokes. Well, the argument is based, again, on, on those the biological father cases, and it seems like the, at this point... Hasn't the court already decided in Santowski that there is something about depriving one of parental status that's not like anything else, and therefore, instead of the ordinary preponderance test, there is a clear and convincing evidence test? It isn't the, whether you agree with that or not, it is the precedent of this court. Yes, I don't disagree with that, but Santowski is talking about in the trial itself. It, yes, but in order to, to fact, why did the court say that a clear and convincing evidence standard is required? 
instead of the ordinary preponderance? What was the basis for that? Well, it may be the uh, greater interest. I'm not arguing with that in the trial stage, but what I'm it arguing... It may be. What did the court, why did the court say that as a matter of the federal constitution, in order to deprive a parent of parental status, the proof standard that, the, uh, that must be met is clear and convincing? I assume that the interests were considered somewhat more than the normal. I don't remember specifically from the case whether or not it, it specifically deals with that. Well, if the court said that it, because there is a fundamental interest at stake, that is the parent-child relationship is a fundamental interest, let's assume that that's what the court said, as I think it did, then uh, the, the parent's loss at the trial level doesn't mean the interest is changed, as Justice O'Connor suggested. The interest remains the same. Well, again, the argument is based on those line of cases that, that talk about the biological connection alone is not sufficient to raise any interest. And the parent's conduct determines that. So when you have a trial court determining that the conduct of the parent is such that, it sh that the parental right should be terminated, then it would seem like at that point the presumption of a fundamental right might be lessened at least. Well, wouldn't the same reasoning that supported the court's statement that this higher standard, why do we have fear and convincing as opposed to preponderance for these cases? What is, would be the reason for doing that? It's an extra check, right, because something fundamental is involved? Yes, so I believe the appellate review is similarly an extra check. I believe the uh, higher standard is was in the case was to lessen the risk of error. And isn't that what the argument is here? You lessen the risk of error by allowing the appeal? I mean, the argument was that there was insufficient evidence to meet this high standard of proof. Theoretically, any appeal would be designed to lessen the risk of error. An appeal of any case would... I suppose that would be, have been true in Ross against Moffitt, too, where you petition for certiorari to the highest court of a state from the decision of an intermediate court of appeal. Yes, uh, yes, Your Honor. Let's assume that the decisions of this court established that, the, that this is a fundamental right, a fundamental relation. Uh, then the uh, equal protection differential here between those who can get the transcript and those who cannot does in one sense impinge on the fundamental right, does it not? I would disagree with that because I think that it's not an impingement of the parent-child relationship. And it's certainly not a direct and substantial impingement, which the Zablocki case and others require uh, for this kind of constitutional violation. It's purely the procedural matter as to what procedures they are entitled to. And in the procedural analysis in the, in the Matthews case, the interest of the parent is taken into consideration in the first uh, part of that uh, uh, balancing test. We've taken the position that, in effect, what Petitioner is doing here is either attempting to extend Bodie versus Connecticut to the appellate level or attempting to find an exception to the Ortwine case. And based on their arguments, they seem to be making a purely wealth disparity argument, which would potentially bring in 
all cases of a civil nature, especially those involving rights that have been determined to be of fundamental That's not the nature. argument that was made, and I may have misunderstood the uh, petitioner's brief, but I thought they were saying we're trying to bracket our case, not with body, uh, but with Griffin, that we think that the impact on our client, permanent deprivation of parental status, ought to be treated the same as a criminal conviction. And there's not, no other civil case like that that declares a woman a non-parent. Well, I think based on the use of the Griffin case and what they're arguing for the, the rights, it, it's very hard to distinguish between fundamental rights at that point. So you get into a situation of having to kind of do a hierarchy of, of fundamental rights and then decide where you cut off the appeals and where you don't. But we asked the petitioner that question, and the answer was there's only one other thing that the petitioner would put in that same box, and that's civil commitment, involuntary civil commitment. So now you want them, to, you want to make their argument something that they are not attempting to do with it. I'm saying that, that argument would be very hard to implement. I think it, it it implicates other things. It would be very hard as a practical matter to separate the one from the other interest. The result of this was would be, I think, that other other courts would end up interpreting this to include other fundamental rights and other important rights. And in that regard, in the 1995 in the state of Mississippi, there were almost 40,000 domestic relations cases filed in the lower courts. So if it were expanded that yeah, far... But how, how, how many of those involved termination of parental rights? There were 194 of these parental rights cases. Yeah. And there were a little over 6,000 paternity cases. And that's compared to a little over 15,000 criminal cases. It's our contention that as far as the paternity cases are concerned, there's no, at least the, in the trial court, there's no analogy to the clear and convincing requirement of Sandowski. I think it's just that has been rejected for paternity, right? There is just a preponderance of the evidence. I don't recall on that. Uh, but the paternity cases are kind of mirror images of the termination cases, just like in Bodie, the fundamental right is the right to marry, but it involves a divorce. So it would be hard to separate the two. I don't see how you could separate the two. But isn't it true that in the paternity cases, the issue is pretty well determined by scientific evidence now, isn't it? Rather, you have a rather narrow factual issue. Yes. I mean, Whereas the, the this DNA, case could be a long record case. You believe some witnesses and you don't believe others and all that. It, a lot of those, as I understand, probably go off on, on the test. It, if the test comes back positive, then the potential father admits it and doesn't fight it. So, Mr. Moore, isn't the paternity case more like any civil case? I mean, what paternity about, is about is money. You have to pay to support the child. You don't. They don't require you to love the child, to take the child to soccer games. All you have to do is, if you're saddled with a paternity decree, is to pay money. That's something of a different quality than to say you have no parental relationship to this child. You are a stranger to the child that you bore. That, that isn't about money. 
Well, I think, though, from a paternity point of view, uh, it's just the opposite, I guess, the, in the sense that the person who is in the paternity case doesn't want to be determined to be the father. Well, people don't want to lose a damage suit either, but all that's at stake is money. Well, there's also the, the creation of a legal relationship against the will of the individual as well. Well, and again, it's, it could certainly ruin the reputation of someone who is uh, decreed uh, to be the father of a child uh, whose father he claims not to be. Yes, Your Honor, this other social stigmas or whatever that would be associated with it. There's also, as far as the trial itself goes, we've said that this is a, a fundamentally fair proceeding that are had in these cases. And it's in a state trial court in, in front of a judge who's trained in the law. The parties are allowed to submit evidence and witnesses and documents. They're allowed to cross-examine and redirect and direct examination of witnesses. And there's nothing been suggested by the petitioner here that these are not fundamentally fair proceedings and meet the requirements. But your rule would apply even if that were the argument. Even if the petitioner was arguing the judge wouldn't let us put on any witnesses, she still couldn't appeal. No, uh, she could in that regard. This case involves, as was mentioned earlier, that... uh, the claim here on the appeal is it's not based on substantial evidence. No, I understand this case, but if it were a case in which the uh, mother claimed that the judge wouldn't listen to me, he wouldn't let me put on any evidence, and he entered his order without any evidence at all, she still couldn't appeal, even if she made those arguments. You don't need a transcript for that appeal. Well, how, do, how can she establish what happened at the trial? If well, she doesn't have a transcript... Uh, the rule that requires uh, the transcript in, in this particular case only requires the whole transcript when, when the issue is raised here or there. Other than that, all you need is, is sufficient information to raise the issue that you have. You can either do that by, in this particular case, by agreement of counsel as to what happened, or potentially it might take one page of the transcript when the judge refused to let her cross-examine witnesses or submit witnesses. Anything I thought, the, I thought the, the state statute required the full transcript. No, only, only when the appeal is based on lack of substantial evidence. Ah, I see. I'm then the court has to have all of it to make the determination. I see. But if the, if the challenge is that the trial of the judge was biased or something like that, well, but even then I suppose you might need the transcript to establish that. But you're saying if the error is one that can be established without a transcript, she could appeal? Yes. If it could be established without the transcript, she could certainly appeal. And in other cases, as I said, it might not take but two or three pages of the transcript. The transcript is only required, apart from the practicality of her being able to establish bias, for example, without the whole transcript. She could claim bias and get an appeal without the transcript. The transcript is only acquired by statute when substantiality of the evidence is at issue, right? Sufficiency of the evidence. That's the only time the the rule or the statute says that you have to have a full transcript. So. She can go up without one for everything else, even though for some of those she may not win without the transcript. I mean, as a practical matter. You don't have to concede. Why, why doesn't that cut in favor of the other side? I mean, it won't cost the state much money then. I mean, in most cases, she'll be able to afford the $6. But if she really couldn't afford the $6, I mean, if that was true, 
you really couldn't afford it. It costs the state six dollars. Not a big deal. I mean, so it isn't much burden on the state. I mean, almost no burden means a lot to her. Have a certificate of probable cause. See, weed out the baddies. You know, the no claims. So what's the major problem for the state? I think, as a practical matter, almost all of these appeals will be where they require the entire transcript because they're based on this lack of substantial evidence. It would be unusual for a claim that a state trial court doesn't provide a fundamentally fair proceeding based on the procedures used. Uh, is there any proceeding uh, in Mississippi in connection with the appeal where there would be a certificate of probable cause, at least by that name? Not that I'm aware of, no, Your Honor. Are there other states that do not provide a free transcript to a poor person for a deprivation of parental status case? Uh, I don't know specifically on that. I know there's some citation in petitioner's brief about states that do. I don't think they cited all of the states as doing that, though. And there's nothing short of a, of a full transcript uh, that could be transcript a uh, transcript of part, but Mississippi doesn't doesn't tape the pr the proceeding, does it? Keep it on on uh, audio tape. No, the proceeding would be taken by a court reporter. Yes, but that wouldn't exclude also having an audio tape. But you're telling me that they don't. It wasn't excluded, but uh, I would doubt if there are any court reporters still using audio tapes. I don't know that. I mean, there could be an individual uh, court reporter somewhere that did that, but I wouldn't think so now. The state's interest in this includes other things besides the cost and the administrative one, burden. One other question of, of Mississippi um, proceedings. Is what happened here the norm that is all the evidence comes in and then the judge makes a kind of a boilerplate judgment repeating the words of the statute and say, says, I have found by clear and convincing evidence that this parent is unfit? I think the order of the judge in any individual case would be dependent depend on that judge. There's not any uh, well, specific... What, well, from your experience in the state, what is the usual? Is this, is this typical, what, what we've seen here? I don't know. I haven't tried any of these these cases actually in. in How many court. circuit judges are there in the state of Mississippi? Do you know. No, I doubt there are 82 counties, but I, as far as the actual numbers of circuit judges, I don't know. I would point out that in uh, when uh, the state is involved in actually prosecuting a termination, there are additional safeguards that take place prior to the filing of a petition in the Chancery Court, and all of those occur in the Youth Court and involve at least four hearings, three of which are judicial in nature, in which the parent is allowed to attend with the assistance of counsel and uh, participate, and that the uh, rights are not terminated with the parent until there have been all of these procedural safeguards taken, and usually it's at least a year after the child has been taken out of the custody of the parent. So are you saying that when the other parent petitions to have um, a parent declared unfit, there's less protection than when the state does it? 
that the, 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 that the petitioner in this case did not get the protection that she would have gotten if the state itself, rather than her former husband, had initiated the proceeding. Yes, the proceedings are, are viewed when the state itself prosecutes a termination. Then it's, it's viewed as, as a little different because what you're doing there is coming in and eventually uh, terminating the, the right of the parent so that the child can be adopted by what ends up being strangers, non-relatives. And it arises here because it's absolutely necessary that the state, the Department of Human Services, go in and remove the child from the home because of potential abuse or... Uh, but you can remove a child from a home without depriving a parent of parental status. Well, it's not always done. When the state does it, it's, it's when it's, it becomes necessary. There's, there are several things that the state goes through with a, an analysis of whether or not it should be brought. Obviously, children that are taken out, and it, that it's in, unfeasible to put them back in the home. Some of them may be 14 or 15. But you were explaining from the point of view of the right of the petitioner why she is entitled to less process when it's her ex-husband than when it's the state that is trying to deprive her of parental status. Well, the state is simply set up for the state because of the unique situation that the state is in. So it, it, in essence, more process is provided because of that particular situation that the state is coming in and, and taking the child. Do I, do I, I want to be sure I didn't miss something. In that situation, does the state provide the transcript when the state initiates the termination proceeding? No. No, it still doesn't. So I don't, what, what is the difference between that proceeding and this in terms of, of uh, state procedural protections? Just that this is done in the youth court before a, a, an action would be filed in the chancery court to actually terminate. There's no termination that takes place in the youth court. It's only uh, judging the status of the child and being able to take the child out of a, a bad situation if necessary. Well, in this case, the complainant or the petitioner was already a non-custodial parent, was she not? Yes, Your Honor. I mean, it wasn't as if the custody was taken away from her. It already had been. She had lost her custody of the children at the time of the divorce. And this was sometime later when the proceeding terminated rights were brought. But uh, uh, your friend says that that can be changed, whereas this can't be changed. Now, is that accurate? Well, certainly, a parent could go back in and attempt to petition to change custody. That's true. Or modify the decree to provide for visitation rights, which might not have been. Custody decrees are modifiable. Uh, is that not right? Yes, Your Honor. And, and uh, deprivation of parental status is final, not modifiable. Yes, the uh, termination would be, I guess, like any other civil case, once the time runs for... Uh, asking the court to reconsider or something, then it would be final, just like any other case, and be raised judicata probably for a month. I suppose the risk of error present in a case like this is that the trial judge naturally be influenced by the best interest of the child, and therefore would tend to give custody to the adopting parents, and not have to make detailed findings about unfitness of the mother whose rights are being terminated. Determination is a condition preceding to the adoption in all these cases, I guess. Determination is preceding yeah. to the adoption. I would disagree... Uh, with what the trial judge would do, because I think trial judges take these things very seriously, 
And I don't think that they would uh, terminate the mother's rights regardless of the situation unless they felt it was absolutely justified based on the evidence that's presented. In conclusion, what a petitioner apparently is attempting to do here is create a vast new constitutional right and further federalize domestic relations law. And we submit that that shouldn't be done in the absence of clear constitutional violation. And we further submit that there's been no showing or evidence that a clear constitutional violation exists in this case. Thank you, Mr. Moore. Uh, Mr. McDuff, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, Justice O'Connor, I believe it was in response to questions from you that uh, the Attorney General's Office gave figures about the number of filings of termination cases in the Chancery Court, and those figures are at page 28 of their brief, but those figures are not in the sources they cite on page 28, and we have not seen any such figures about the number of parental termination filings in Chancery Courts or in the appellate courts. The Mississippi Supreme Court does keep figures, and we've cited them in our brief, as have our opponents, on the numbers of custody appeals of which parental termination are a subset. And in 1995, there were 10 custody cases decided by the Mississippi Supreme Court and another six decided by the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Mr. Uh, Duff, uh, yes. what about divorce? That's, uh, that's final. It deals with status. Should we apply the same rule to, di to a, a divorce decree that you're asserting here? No, sir. I mean, divorce also is something actually that can be, can be remedied in the future if people want to remarry, plus they can continue to have contact or not contact. There's a level of freedom in the relationship. No, but let, let, let's assume it's not a no-fault divorce kind of state. Your reason has to be established. The other person doesn't want to remedy the divorce. The person who's won it fully wants it. Uh, if, if a state, if I gather most of the states, maybe all of them now have uh, effectively no fault, fault divorce, but uh, let's assume a state changes that and does not have no fault divorce, I, I guess we would have to apply the same rule to divorce, wouldn't we? If the party unwillingly divorced wants to appeal, we, we would have to allow that appeal uh, IFP. No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that involves nearly the kind of, 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 of termination of an, of an intimate relationship beyond the control of, of the parent that you have, or beyond the control of the party involved, that you have when a child is taken away against your will by state action. Well, I thought that, that was the rationale of body that the divorce did. The, the rationale of body, as I understand it, is that the divorce, because it involves a marriage relationship, is very important. And because the state has an exclusive monopoly on it, that uh, filing fees that freeze people out are unconstitutional. So I think there is... A, a high status and an important interest here, but I don't think it comes to the kind of, of uh, grievous injury that's done here. So when the, you have the, the cutting off a parental, parental relation is a, quote, fundamental, close quote, interest, and a right to get a divorce is high but not fundamental? No, I didn't, no I'm sorry. I, didn't, I don't mean to, to sort of do a gradation there, but in Bodie, the people were married and wanted access to the state-created apparatus for obtaining a divorce, and this court said they can't be frozen out by a certain amount of money. And when you're talking about appeal, I do think that is different. Well, but you have to do a, a, a gradation, uh, or then body is going to come out the same way as your case, and we'll have transcripts in all divorce cases. No. So that, it, I take it was the thrust of the Chief Justice's question. Yes, and I, I didn't mean to sort of... And so I think you have to have a hierarchy or a gradation. And, and I guess that's what we're saying is that 
because of the nature of the harm here as compared to whatever happens in a divorce proceeding, that this is the kind of thing where a transcript would be required and it might not there. On the theory that children are more important than spouses to the, to the individuals involved, is that, is that the theory that causes you to put this on a lower level? No, on the theory that a divorce decree or, a, or the resolution of a divorce case involves all kinds of complicated mechanisms that the parties have a right to affect in terms of their interrelationship, but here the person's child is being taken away against their will, and we think it's, it's a Are you it's a saying that body is, or body, I don't know how to pronounce it, is, two is, is it's different. Yeah. However, that comes out, it's a different case, because those are the people who said, two state, D's. we want you to pay for our divorce. We want something from you. Where here, the woman is saying, please don't take my child away. She's not coming to the court asking for anything. She just wants to be spared from the state taking away her child. That's correct. So the two cases seem to me quite distinct. However you would come out in body or body, it's not what we're dealing with here. Yes. Thank you, Mr. McDuff. The case is submitted.